This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Since 2000, the Las Vegas Valley has turned its eyes this time of year to the burrow of the legendary Mojave Max. We all try to guess when he's going to emerge from his tortoise sleepy time because locals know it isn't spring until Mojave Max says it is. Today on CityCast Las Vegas, as we wait for his little head to peek out, we're bringing you a conversation we had last spring with Audrey Locke of the Desert Conservation Program. We share all the deets about the Valley's most elusive celebrity. Like, did you know that there were three Mojave Maxes? It's Monday, March 13th. I'm David Figler, and here's what Las Vegas is talking about. So, Audrey, you work for the Clark County Desert Conservation Program as its public information officer. A lot of us uh, who have lived in the Valley for some time know the name Mojave Max. He's uh, clearly our most famous of tortoises. So (laughs) can you tell us a little bit about Mojave Max, who Mojave Max is? Well, Mojave Max has definitely become the face of desert conservation, especially for the desert tortoise. Um, And that started back in 2000 when we started to do the Mojave Max Emergence Contest. Um, That's something that the elementary school kids get to participate in. They get to guess when they think he's going to come out of his habitat. And the winner uh, gets a lot of prizes. Their teacher gets a prize. Their class gets a field trip. Tortoises typically live between 50 and 80 years. The first mascot itself was brought about in about 2001. And the original Mojave Max Unfortunately, he passed away in 2008, and we brought about um, another, we had another tortoise that we determined would, you know, kind of pick up the torch and carry it on. And he was a little bit of a scoundrel What we, from what we understand. He was uh, translocated to an area, and it was a large-scale area site near Gene, Nevada, and he escaped from there. He oh, got no. through the fencing in the area, and he made his way onto the I-15, and a nice couple oh, no. from Southern California picked him up. No, it has a oh, happy ending. Okay. Oh, so. <laughs> my gosh, you had me scared <laughs> no, I, there. No, I don't want anybody scared. Um, but a, a nice couple from Southern California picked him up, took him with them back to California, and then turned him over to who they thought would be the authorities to handle the situation. They actually found the tag on him and returned him to Southern Nevada. He was since retired, and we have our current Mojave Max. So we're actually on our third live tortoise who is representing the desert tortoise conservation efforts. He is housed at the Springs Preserve. Brumation, is that correct? And that's sort of the reptile version of hibernation? It's the cold-blooded animal version of the warm-blooded animal's hibernation. So last year, Mojave Max emerged on March 26, 2022. How long was he brumating last winter? 
so quick math, about seven months he was in. Oh, wow. Um, and, and that's through the winter months. Um, a lot of, there's several factors that determine when he decides to come out. And that would be obviously the warmer temperatures in his own internal clock. They're, they're instinctually, they know when to come out. Um, and whether or not there's rain, uh, if there's some rain, sometimes they'll come out a little earlier because they know that that's a good time to come out. They'll come out and dig a little hole, make a little pool outside of their uh, habitat and let the water fill up in there and then come out and drink that water. So so there's a few things that contribute to them determining when to come out, but they spend most of their time under the ground. So with Mojave Max, I mean, mm-hmm. he really has become emblematic for conservation. How, how did Mojave Max as a character get started? Do you, do you know the, the, the history of uh, making Mojave Max bigger than life? The emergence contest was something that was a brainchild from the department many, many years ago. And the people that got together and talked about how do we promote a responsible, respectful, protective use of our desert in general. And they said they wanted something that was going to be iconic, something that people would recognize, something that people would want to protect. And I believe that's the conversations that brought about Mojave Max. We have tortoise talks that we do in the schools, and we have assemblies, large assemblies that we do in the schools. And they teach all about tortoise anatomy, tortoise protection, and that kind of thing. But over all, we want people to understand that the desert is fragile, even though it doesn't look fragile. And tortoises especially are a good indicator of that. They are actually called an indicator species where we understand that if the tortoises in an area are not healthy, it's very likely that there's something wrong in the desert area, whether it's with the plants that they're eating or the amount of water that's getting there and that type of thing. Sure, our version of a canary in a coal mine in our fragile desert environment. Right, exactly. And the tortoise is kind of a good representation of how people uh, think of our desert. It's they think it's hard and and durable and nothing can hurt it, but they have they have fragile areas and there are things that do impact them. So we want people to understand that and learn that. What are uh, some of the threats, you think, to the desert tortoises themselves? I, I mean, I, I know they have natural predators like right. uh, ravens that are out there, right. which are also my natural predator. I'm always afraid when I see a raven. <laughs> uh, you know, never more, Audrey, never more. Never a good sign. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, what are just generally some of the threats to desert tortoises? Obviously, development is something that is impacts our whole valley. And um, there's needs to be a balance there. So that is why um, our conservation program exists. The Desert Conservation Program does not deal with pet tortoises. That is not what our focus is. Our focus is to make sure that uh, wild desert tortoises are removed from harm's way if there is a construction site or other reason for them to be possibly injured or harmed. Um, so we want to make sure that uh, all the Construction sites that exist throughout the valley are educated and understand that if they come across a desert tortoise on the site that they're developing, they need to contact us and we will come out and we will relocate that tortoise. So let's let's talk through that for a second. If 
there is some developer who wants to go into the desert and it is discovered through the survey, and I know they have to pay for the surveys, um, that there are desert tortoises there or any other endangered species, but let's focus on desert tortoises. Where where do they go? Is there a place where these wild desert tortoises wind up? Yes, they're first located at a site uh, that's in the south end of the valley that is specifically designed to house them until they can go through the health check. And if they if it's time for their brumation, if they're t- it's time for them to go in and hibernate, uh, we allow that ha- to happen naturally, of course. And then when they come out, um, as long as they've met all the health requirements and they're healthy and they're OK to be released into the wild, we actually have 86,000 acres just outside of Boulder City. Um, It's called the Boulder City Conservation Easement. And that's where we will take them and release them into the wild. And it's not a a marked space. It's kind of uh, Area 51 for desert tortoises, right? Right, right. I could tell you, but, you know, (laughs) I won't. Then you have to feed me (laughs) to the ravens. I'm not going to say that, right? (laughs) Yeah, no, no, I know. The ravens are are my my biggest threat. So uh, (laughs) let me ask you, uh, are there any dangers in translocating these tortoises? What are some of the uh, potential challenges that might exist to uh, translocating tortoises even to this uh, safe space? Well, I think with anything, that would, that would probably be a question better for one of our biologists. But my understanding is, is that like with anything, removing it from where it's familiar might cause it some issues. But for the most part, what we have found is the ones that we've translocated and the ones that we have been able to track because we do put a tracking on them. And when we go out and do our post-translocation surveys and check the health of them and everything, um, it seems to be working very well. And we're happy happy to report that even uh, we we are able to confirm that our females are reproducing as well. So that's a good thing. We want to make sure that they um, are continuing to live as they would before being translocated. I do, you know, some of the things that we teach uh, as to why you don't pick them up and you, why you don't relocate them. One of them is, is if you pick up a tortoise and you scare it, it can lose its water. And that is not, that is not good for a tortoise. They can hold water for almost a year and they live off of that, of course, because they spend almost 95% of their time in their burrows or underground. And so we don't want them to be unnecessarily frightened or have the potential to lose the water. Of course, you know, if someone came up from behind me and picked me up, I might lose my water too. I'm just saying. It's not, right. That's not so, that's not a natural thing for anybody. So uh, if, if, we, if, if people don't get any other message, do not pick up a wild tortoise. It will pee on you. <laughs> right. Pretty much. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, um, like I said, there's things that would happen to anything that you relocate, but we have been able to track that and we believe that they are obviously safer being translocated to this conservation area than remaining on a construction site or being picked up and taken to be domesticated where it's not necessarily safe for them or something that they can adapt to. Right. But I want to talk about ravens too, uh, because (laughs) we do have ravens out in the desert and Mm -hmm. and they are the natural predator of tortoises. What what can we do about 
um, the raven population as it as reflects on uh, the, the tortoise population. In other words, are there things that we as humans do that draws ravens in or could you know possibly dissuade them from coming into our, our tortoise habitats? The main message with that is uh, we don't want anybody to litter. If you litter out in the desert, that's what brings the ravens. The ravens are especially harmful to uh, the hatchlings, the young tortoises, about five years and under because their shells are still soft and they're susceptible to uh, a raven uh, picking them up or, or damaging them while they're on the ground. Um, and so we, we ask every Everybody, please don't litter. And this isn't just uh, for kids that we go into the schools. We also have uh, conversations with those who like to do off-roading, and we do not discourage off-roading on trails. Uh, so we ask everybody, make sure if you're off-road, you stay on the tr designated trails because um, you may damage flowers or the plants that the tortoises rely on. So everything is cyclical. And we want to make sure that we keep all of that safe. But it's specifically to the ravens, the thing that we can do the most to keep them away from certain areas is not to litter. Great. Is there anything else people can do to keep the, the desert uh, a little bit more pristine and safe for our wildlife, which are so important to our ecosystem? Uh, the the biggest message there is stay on the trails, whether you're hiking, biking, off-roading, stay on the trails. We are just trying to make sure that that activity doesn't damage other things that we are actively trying to protect. So stay on the trails, please. Great, great advice. Uh, stay on trails anyway. It's it's dangerous off those trails. Right. <laughs> I mean, it was hard enough to get me to go on trails initially. And then uh, just, you know, just even the possibility of me falling down and Again, being attacked by ravens, I'm going to stay on those trails all the time. <laughs> and that's a that's a part of the education program for the Mojave Max program is we want to encourage the teachers to include this in their curriculum. And we are not just a one day come out and talk about tortoises and leave. We actually encourage uh, the teachers to have a curriculum around desert conservation and especially the desert tortoise. Yeah. And that really does come right back to that stewardship idea. I know mm -hmm. there's, you know, I grew up in Las Vegas. I know you did as well. There is always this sort of idea that, you know, the desert is both our friend and enemy and we have to be aware of it. But I know there's a lot of places in the valley uh, where kids don't get out to the desert anymore, especially mm -hmm. as the, the valley has grown and development has grown. So uh, that idea of stewardship is really super important. And I think that the, the message from Mojave Max is that uh, it can be fun too. It could be fun to be a steward right. for our natural area. As someone, Absolutely. Yeah, as someone who grew up in, in the Mojave Desert, what, what do you love most about Mojave Max? Well, you know, I think I mentioned it earlier. I like that he's a representation of what the desert is. Uh, he is tough on the outside, but he is susceptible uh, to outside influences and outside dangers. Um, and I think our desert is very much like that. We have some of the most beautiful flowers uh, that you can find anywhere. Um, and there's that contradiction of flowers growing out of the cacti. Uh, and I think that Mojave Max is a good representation of that. Tough on the outside, but he needs protection and he needs to be kept safe. And that's our responsibility to do that. Audrey Locke, thank you so much for spending time with us and giving us a little more insight into our animated friend and our real friend, Mojave Max. Thank you, David, and congratulations on your podcast. Thanks. And now with a possibly literal microdose of the news, how about those trippy Nevada Dems? 
Democrat State Senator Rochelle Nguyen has introduced a bill to legalize small amounts of magic mushrooms and study the possible medical benefits of other substances. Colorado and Oregon have already decriminalized psilocybin shrooms. Sponsors pitch it as another bill to help the mental health crisis. Likely opposition will come from law enforcement and big pharma. Meanwhile, local schools are on spring break this week, which lowers the odds of a student bringing a gun to campus for a few days. The other day, a kid at Las Vegas High brought the six-gun confiscated by CCSD in a two-week span. And while it's newsworthy to document these instances, progressive watchers are hoping for more consideration into why this is happening versus how can we get more police into the schools. That's all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. Have you ever gotten the Mojave Max guessing game right? Well, send that humble brag plus this episode to a friend. Or if your friend is new to Vegas, introduce them to our favorite reptilian celebrity. Then rate the show and leave us a review. Like this one from a listener who says, I enjoyed the podcast because I trust the hosts and their guests. I learn new things every episode that challenge my beliefs and help me grow. Hey, thanks, friend. Hey, also don't forget to subscribe to our amazing morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Take care. The Las Vegas Valley turns its lonely eyes to you, Mojave Max. <clears throat> All right.